Welcome to Shas Illuminated. Please enjoy the following shear. About about three weeks ago, I was asked. Somebody called me up and mentioned that maybe somebody should come speak in yeshiva. There's a, a big speaker out there, a famous speaker, and they mentioned that they would sponsor it, and maybe this person will come speak in the yeshiva. And I politely declined. I wasn't mean to the person. I said, you know, we're not such a speaker-type place. In general, guys have their schedules to gather our guys for a speech. It's not always the thing to do. It doesn't always resonate by the guys. I didn't think it was a good idea. About a couple of days later, my, my friend Yochanan Gordon, somebody I'm, Yochanan Badner, somebody I'm close to, my friend Yochanan Badner, who learned in this yeshiva, he was learned with my son. He mentored and learned with Hudi. When Yehudi was in yeshiva for Akwey, Yochanan Badner learned with Hudi. My kids are friendly with his kids. He actually learned with Waterbury. And he mentioned that he has somebody that he appreciates and mentioned this person coming to speak in the yeshiva. So what I did was, is I went online and I listened to a shir. And I want to tell you what I was looking for, why I said yes, when typically in the last many years, years ago I brought speakers to yeshiva. I don't do it. I frankly, guys have their own schedules. I don't want to, guys are very strong for their own schedules. It wasn't easy to gather the guys. Anything out of guys' schedules is not always so easy to gather the guys. There are things going on. So why that, so I usually say no. Why did I say yes here? And I want to, I want to, I want to hear Rabbi Horowitz. I'm very interested in hearing. I'll tell you what drew me from hearing his own, hearing online. I want to say as follows. What draws me to Ray Shapiro's learning of Torah is that it's very personal. His Torah, he connects to it in an authentic and real way. It's his own story. Theoretically, when you learn a black Gemara with a person, you're, you're meeting their story. Two people learn the best way. Guys talk out how to bring out their essence. The best way is learn Gemara honestly, but not forced. Not pressure to say Yisvara, the Kasha people. You ever were in a shear and you ask the Kasha, I would say, oh, go, go, say better. I would say, what do you mean say better? <laughs> say better really means say my type of thinking. I said, no, 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 no. Say better, I'm sorry, this is my thoughts. So I say better. Tyra is each unique. We, we, we're learning Mesechtas Gittin. The remarkable Gemara that when Hashem was asked by Rav Yasser, what are they learning in Shemayim? And he said, Hashem's learning the sug, you're learning Pelegish Pegiva. And he asked him, what does Hashem say on the Pasuk about Tizana love Pelagshay? And Hashem quoted a Machlaikis, Rav Yasser or Rav Yenison. Frak the Gemara, is Hashem not sure? Now, I want to say like this, did you ever wonder in Shas, there's a machlaikas abaya in Rava. Maybe Rava changed his mind. It's been quite a long time. Must be so awkward. In Shemayim, if Abaya once said, you know, Rava, after all this thousand year, a thousand years, these hundreds of years, I've changed my mind, I agree to you. So then in Shas, we have it wrong. For eternity, it says Abaya and Rava One second, Abaya no longer sticks to that truth. And the pshat, of course, is that whenever in Shas you see a name, Abayah Imer, Rava Imer, 
it means that the perfect Abaya will always say this. Abaya is supposed to say this. Taira through the prism of Abaya's experiences, of Abaya's Svara is going to always say this. Abaya Omer means if he ever agrees to Rava, he's no longer Abaya, he became Rava. Abaya is supposed to say this. An Abaya lived as an Abaya will always say this. When Hashem says a machlaikis and he says it, Rav Yasser says this, Rav Yainasan says this, means that Hashem's Torah through shining through Rav Yasser is supposed to teach us this. And all of us have a chalik in Torah. Hashem's Torah and through our honest pursuit, honest question, honest understanding, we bring Tyra out to the world. So what drew me, what I want to say drew me to Rabbi Aftali Horowitz and why I thought that it would be such a great, what I want to hear, and I want my friends, want everybody here to hear this yid, is I felt very strongly from the speech. And when somebody's speaking at us, telling us, guys, this is what you should do, Things like that, I don't, then I don't need speeches. When somebody's sharing their own Torah, their own journey, every word on Chumash, when you hear Rabbi Shapiro, he's sharing, he's giving you a piece of his soul. He's sharing Torah as it flowed through him. That's what I sensed in Rev Horowitz. Rev Horowitz told me, if I could say over it, it fascinated me. He wrote a book, a beautiful book that I intend to read. And he told me that he didn't put in so many personal stories. That's always a question. The more, uh, often when you, and I sense in this person, in this, that I was zeichet to meet today for the first time, but I was zeichet to hear the share ready a few weeks ago. What I see is when somebody tells you a Dvar Torah, Shapiro tells us Dvar Torah, you've met the man. Because he's not, he's not talking at us, he's... He's, he's giving an honest account through his... You could tell Rabbi Shapiro and his experiences from listening to his shiurim. You could learn him. You, you feel you know him. That's the most pure Torah. That's a Torah that resonates. That's ideas that resonates. The, 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 the shiur I heard online, I'm not the expert in the world, but the shiur I heard online resonated by me and I wanted to hear. I trust my friend of Yochanan Gordon, Yochanan Badner, but... As well, I wanted to say that the, the shear I heard, it passed this test of somebody who's saying honestly how they view things. You're getting a sense of the person's experience. So I want to thank Rav Horowitz came with Yochanan Badner. They came from they came from five towns. It's quite the journey. I want to thank Rav Tali Horowitz for coming down, for agreeing to speak to the Chevra. I want to thank the guys for altering your schedules and coming to hear Devreta. I think it will be worth all our while. I want to say that we were Zaycha Sunday to hear from my sunshine. He's not given to hyperbole. He's a very honest person, as the guys heard. And he said to me, Rai sunshine, I spoke to him today. And he says he sees the yeshiva. The guys are in the best places he's seen as a chabura. He was in our yeshiva two days a week for many years. And he says this year, the level which I agreed to is at a height as a collective group, the highest he's seen in yeshiva in all the years. I agreed to him that there's so much process and growth. I sat there at that group on Sunday thinking just I was impressed with my sunshine, but equally I was nishtayman from the chevron. 
the questions the guys asked, the honest discussions, it was incredibly refreshing, the whole sophisticated dialogue. So I want to thank the guys for that. And without further ado, I want to welcome Rav Horowitz to share the return. Thank Rabbi Kalish for running around the campus lobbying you all to be here. The English language is a word, the word is superfluous. Anyone knows what it means? Extra, Extra, unnecessary, unneeded. I feel utterly superfluous standing here at a podium next to Rabbi Kalish when I doubt there's anything I could share with you that he hasn't already shared with you or couldn't share with you if he took the podium. When I'm not at a podium, um, I'm a managing director on Wall Street. Baruch Hashem, Yochan and I manage a very, very large wealth management practice at Morgan Stanley where I'm a managing director been on Wall Street now for over 20 years. Before that, I was in corporate finance. And the reason why I'm here is what we, a term we use in Wall Street, which is leverage. Leverage means that you take a dollar, you borrow three, you invest it in Tesla, goes up 100% if you davened well. Well, depends when you bought it. And then you don't just earn the money on the dollar, you earn it on the three that you borrowed as well. A person has X amount of time in their life. And that's it. We all have 24 hours a day. It's very possible that when a person comes up one day and they live 70, 80, 90 years, they get credit for 70, 80, 90 years. And then there are going to be people that come up like Rabbi Kalish who are going to be given credit for more years than Adam Arishan or Musa Shalach lived. Then they say, Rabbi Kalish, your 7,000 years on planet Earth were absolutely unbelievable. And he's going to say, what are you talking about? I only lived 120 years. And they're going to say, what are you talking about? You spent one hour talking to 85 boys. That's 85 hours out of one hour. And if that's not leverage, then what is? And then we can take that further because... In that one hour, which became 85 hours, you were mashpia on people who went out and were mashpia on others, and you multiply that, what we call compounded returns, and you did live thousands and thousands of years. So, to me, this is the best investment. Investing in what I would have wanted someone to invest in me when I was sitting where you're sitting right now. And perhaps to share with you some things that I had to learn the hard way. You probably will have to learn it the hard way too. Maybe you already did, but be as it may, let's see if there's something here that isn't going to be utterly superfluous. Let me just start with a little background. I grew up as a foreigner. What does that mean? Well, from the day that I was born, I was told who I am and what's expected of me. I am a direct descendant of 
the founders of the Hasidic movement. Anyone who's Hasidic would know Naftali Horowitz was the famous Rabbi Abrabshitz, who's my great grandfather, straight down. Normally, Melech, Rabbi Melech of Lezhensk, the Kajan Samagid, the Balshemtov, you name it. There isn't, you throw a stone in Williamsburg, you're going to hit one of my cousins, especially if you hit a Rebbe. It's not possible. Yet, so in that world, I never really fit in. I just felt the box was too tight for me. What I must wear, what I'm allowed to do. I just, it didn't work. Coupled with the fact that my father threw me into literature yeshivas. And there, everyone made fun of me because I was a blue blood chassid. So the chassidim made fun of me because I was a litvak, and the litvaks made fun of me because I was a chassid. My Rosh Hashivas all convinced me, or tried to, that I was going to be a Rosh Hashiva one day. That's why I was on this world. I had Baruch Hashem the brain for it, and I loved learning, but my heart told me otherwise. My heart told me that that's not what I'm supposed to be doing on this world. And I was always a misfit, because no matter how many times they tried to convince me, I just didn't work. But I went through the system, I went to Brisk, I went to Lakewood, I did everything that I should have done, until one day my heart told me that that's not what I'm here for. It was difficult growing up as a misfit. It just was. It's hard. Because I was wearing blue shirts. My Hasidic cousins made fun of me because I had a Litvish Havara. I mean, imagine. I, I was, I will never forget, I was 12 years old. My Zayd and Rabbi Yoel, Teitelbaum, the Satmar Rebbe, were like best friends. And as a little boy, I went to Rabbi Yoel consistently for Shabbos. And my mother bought me, when I was a kid, I always had a dream. I wanted to own a Pierre Cadern suit. That was like the best company. I don't even know if it exists anymore. And a Pierre Cadern suit had gold buttons with P and C on it. Well, I was into Shachris, in Kiryas Yol, one hour when the boys basically took me outside and ripped off all my gold buttons because only a Shagat wears a gold button. The rest of my Shabbos, I wore no buttons on my jacket. And then after Shabbos, my mother was very upset about it. And she went back to the store and they gave a new pair of their buttons. And I said, no, if Tati's taking me back to Monroe, let's just put on regular buttons because I don't want to go through this again. So I think the first lesson that I learned in life is that you have to find who you are. I wrote a book called You Revealed. When I submitted the book to Art Scroll, Gedali Zlatowicz called me up and said, we love the book. I'm like, but we hate the title. I said, fine. I'll call Feldheim. He goes, what do you mean? You don't understand, Gedalia. I wrote the book because of the title. I didn't write a book and title it. I wrote a book about a title. And I said, I'll make you a bet, Gedalia, that if we don't sell out the first printing, I'll change the name of the book. 
I changed the cover, by the way. Anyone who saw my first version, which they created, I didn't like, so I changed the cover and for the second printing. But the book name stayed, and he called me up after the seventh or eighth or ninth printing and said, you will probably write about the cover. And the reason why I wrote the book is because the thousands of people that I've met in this world that are utterly miserable, depressed, sick and tired of life, burnt out, call it whatever you want, are living life as someone else. Period. Somebody told them, this is the way you should live life. Somebody told them, this is what you should become. Why are you an accountant? My father always wanted to be an accountant. Why are you an accountant? All my friends went into accounting. I'm 44 years old. I'd rather shoot myself than see another Excel spreadsheet. How did I get here? I have no idea. But I don't belong here. And then society will tell you what you should look like, what you should wear, where you should go, right? They'll lay it all out for you. It's on billboards, it's on the internet, it's your friends, it's your relatives, and everybody has an opinion. And one day you wake up and you say, who am I and how did I get here? This we call a midlife crisis. Some people have it at 27, some people have it at 47, some people have it at 67. If you have it at 57 and you're wealthy enough, you buy a Ferrari, maybe you divorce your wife, you have hair implants, I don't know what you do. If you have it at 27, you freak out. Because you never lived a day as who you were. Who you are. So I wrote a book about you. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created you. To be you and only you. Not me, not Rabbi. Because if he wanted another Rabbi Kalish, he would have created two. But that would have been superfluous. And the first thing I realized is that I can only be myself. You don't like my blue shirts. You don't like my Litzah Shavara. You don't like that I'm on Wall Street. Well, that's your problem. Until this day, I don't care. I honestly learned not to care. That doesn't mean they don't care what my Rav thinks. They They don't care what my wife thinks. That would be pretty bad. But at the end of the day, I take an information and I see if this fits who I am. I get calls all the time. Come speak here. Come speak here. Come do this. Come do that. Get involved in this. Get involved with that. And when I was younger, I would have said yes, 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 yes. Because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm just supposed to say yes. And then one day I learned the magic word called called no. What do you mean no? I just don't feel like that's me. That's just not who I am. Satmar called me up and asked me to speak out against smartphones. Well, I have two of them. (laughs) Talk about how bad it is. But I have two of them. I know there are things that are bad about smartphones. But I don't think the biggest problem in our world today is smartphones. I just don't. I'm sorry. But you're so convincing. Can't you? No. The answer is no. It's not who I am. We are living in a generation which has more wealth, pleasure, conveniences than if you took all the wealth in the history of mankind that was in the world, cumulatively, 
It wouldn't equal up the amount of wealth that there is today in existence. Klai Yisrael today is well. I mean, when I grew up, he's a millionaire. My, my kid came up from Yeshiva and says, Tati, my friend told me that you're a millionaire. I said, I hope not. That would be pretty bad. He goes, why? What's a million dollars today? A house in Barra Park, even with a mortgage, is a million dollars. I mean, today you're a schnarr if you're a millionaire. What are you, a millionaire? Now they're throwing around numbers. 100 million, 500 million, billion. By the way, they're real. We know, we see this all day. Oh, I just saw my business. I'm 28 years old. I need help. Yeah, what would you sell for? 97 million. Okay, but I'm going to have to pay tax. So 72 million. When I was a kid, there was nobody that I knew of that had $72 million. So we have so much. What you could, whatever you want. Going to pomegranate, going to... You want this... When I was a schmaltz herring and pickled herring, right? That's it. Those are your choices. That's it. Today, I mean, I'm asking you. Seriously. Seriously. You could have a whole room of just herring. Can I ask you a super question? Yes. We should be the happiest generation in history, right? <coughs> we should be walking around, just our faces should like hurt from smiling, right? Can I ask you a question as to why Prozac is one of the best-selling drugs in America? You don't even know what that's for, but it's for people that are sour pusses and they have a hard life. They're, they're down. They're depressed, right? It's all over the place. Therapists are booked solid. Solid. You can't get anybody. People call me up all the time because I have connections. Could you get me in with this one? Why are we not the happiest generation? My grandfathers, if they lived through a day and they weren't killed in a pogrom, they didn't die of cholera or some other horrible disease or smallpox, that was a successful day. I made it. Today? I'm serious. Think about it. Why? Why are we the happiest generation? Why are people depressed and anxious and down and burnt out? So the answer, Rebbe Levi Yisrael tells us, and my holy Piyasetzna, Rebbe, cousin, Hashem Yimkan Damai, say the same thing. He says that, they say that the source of all depression is when a person's free will is taken away from them. When a person is oppressed, whether consciously or self-consciously, that is the source of depression. Simcha Sachayim comes when a person feels that they have the power to make choices. When you take that away from somebody, says Rebbe Yitzchak, which is the essence of what a person is, the power to choose right from wrong, the power to choose how I live my life, when you surrender that, that is the source of all depression. When you spend your life living like somebody else, for somebody else, because of somebody else, when you are not authentically you, at some point it's going to catch up to you. You may get away with it for a year or two or three, but at some point you're going to start to <coughs> decompose inside. I don't think anything I just said is a chiddush. I just want to give you all chizuk. 
that if you feel different than what you see around you, maybe outside of this yeshiva or maybe even inside of this yeshiva, if you feel like you perhaps don't fit in, good. You are an individual. And believe me, everybody is an individual. And we're all here for a very, very different purpose. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu created everybody exactly the way they were supposed to be created with every single characteristic that they need to bring about the rectification of this world through what HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave to each of us. Nobody in this room is superfluous. And we will only achieve our purpose in life when we embrace our individuality. Dalton and Kellum says an unbelievable thing. We make a big deal about Ke'ish Echad, Belev Echad, Shvuis, we were like one, we were like one. The altar of Kellum says, Greater than what HaKadosh Baruch Hu did for us in Har Sinai, that he was ma'achir us as one unit, did he do later on in the Torah when he multiple times counts us as individuals to remind us that the world is not one unit, that the world consists of individuals. So yes, Klai Yisrael as a unit has a mission, but it's a mission that's carried out by individuals. And to embrace, the rabbi used the word before, self-acceptance. That I am what I need to be, and my job here is to be the best version of me possible. I learn from other people, they inspire me, but I'm not him and he's not me. If you do that, every single person could change the world. Because the world needs what every single one of us has as an individual. The second lesson that I learned in life is that the real pleasures of life hardly ever could be purchased with a credit card or money. The reason why, one of the reasons why I didn't go into Rabbanus was I grew up very, very poor. And poverty, especially when you're really at the bottom of the totem pole, whether it was yeshiva, my, ki- my friends all had 10-speed bikes. Today, 10-speed bike, you're a schnara. Now they have 20, 30, 40. I don't even know how many speeds they put on bikes today. I had a Red Schwinn girls' bike that I inherited from my sisters. It was a one-speed bike. It was a girls' bike. And it was red. So that's not fun. I stole my father's Afi Koyman. I remember when I was 11 or 12. And I asked for a new bike. And my father said to me, you deserve a new bike. My father took me to Toys R Us. And there it was, a light blue, gorgeous, 10-speed boy's bike. And I was just staring at it. And I was like dreaming, pulling up the yeshiva finally, looking like anything other than a schnara, and it was $90 or $80. And I said, Tati, that's the bike I want. And then my father says, but 
this one's on sale. It was $20 less. It was a three-speed girl's bike. A huffy. And I looked at my father and I knew that $20 was a big deal. And I said, Tati, I'll take the one on sale. So I drove a girl's bike. If you come to my house, you're all welcome to see it. Hanging on the back of my garage is a $3,700 all-carbon Kestrel bike with 29 speeds. <laughs> it weighs the minimum. There's a limit. You have to, bike has to weigh a certain amount. Otherwise, it doesn't fit. You're not allowed to race it. You can literally pick this bike up with your pinky. You don't even have to pedal. You sit down and it flies. I've ridden it four times. That's my trophy. My first boy's bike. Hang on the back wall, okay? Anybody wants to borrow it, come right over. It's a beautiful bike, it really is. It's just a gorgeous bike. Now, where was I? You grow up poor, and I mean really poor. I once had a client, her name was Phyllis Schreiber, Aleha Sholen. Joel doesn't even know her, she passed away before we met. Phyllis came to my office, her son was my client, and she says to me, I need to find a new financial advisor. She was 92 years old. So I said, Phyllis, what's wrong with your old financial advisor? She says, you know, he's been my financial advisor for 65 years. I said, you had the... Yes, how old is he? He's 94. I said, so what's wrong? He's starting to lose it a little. So I said, okay, so we talked for a while. And then she says to me, I really like you, she says, but I have one problem. Can I be honest? I said, sure. She says, I know you deal with big shots. Her son was my client. I know you have billionaire clients. She goes, I'm just a poor woman. She had three and a half million dollars. Phyllis, Phyllis, my dear Phyllis, let me tell you a story. When I was nine, when I was a kid, there wasn't a wall in Borough Park I didn't climb. I climbed everything. Walls, barbed wire, fences, you name it. When they needed someone to break into the kitchen in yeshiva, it was me. I was so skinny, I could take out a cinder block and slide right through. This, this video of me doing this, by the way, in Tartamima. Sliding through. They, they said, how did anyone get into this kitchen? And there was one, and they said, nobody can get through a cinder block. Until they set up a camera, and there you have me coming through the cinder block. My wife doesn't like when I tell these kids, my kids these stories. So, one Shabbos afternoon, I climbed the wall and I tore my pants. And what I knew this would do to my mother was, I knew my mother couldn't afford to buy me another pair of pants. I know for some of you this may be hard to understand, and some of you won't, but the, the trepidation of me having to out- tell my mother that I my pants was unbelievable. So I hid in my room and then after Shabbos I did what every nine-year-old would do. I Elmer glued my pants together. I thought nobody would ever know. Any of you ever use Elmer's glue even? It definitely doesn't work on pants. I put it all together really nicely and I put it into my drawer between two books. Very chacham. Of course it's stuck to the book but that's a whole other story. And then I figured next Friday I'll take it out. I don't know where. Nobody will notice. Well, guess what? It didn't work. So I said to Phyllis, I said, if you think somebody who wants Elmer glued their pants together 
will ever think that three and a half million dollars isn't all the money in the world, then you don't know who I am. And she looked at me and she says, okay, you're my guy. So, when you grow up poor, all you want is money. That's all you want. You want that carbon bike. You want a new Tesla. You want a big mansion. You want a watch collection. You want to be able to get out and say to the world, I'm not poor. That's it. Hey, I'm rich. I'm not poor. I'm not that poor kid who drives a girl's bike. That's not me. That was him. Now I'm Mr. Who Knows What. And you think that that's going to make you happy. But I already told you that the only reason to do that is because you think living like somebody else is what's going to make you happy. Well, I started that way, trust me. At one point, I had eight watches. I had two paddocks, an AP, if you know what that stands for. I had a Breitling. I had two Breguets. I had a Rolex. I had it all. Three watch winders. Three. And then one day I woke up and realized that I'm not an octopus and that I don't need, I don't even have a watch in my hand now. I have a watch, don't worry. So one day I woke up and realized that none of this was making me one iota happy. Not only that, I was looking at my clients and I was seeing misery upon misery. Divorces, messed up kids, people who lost their minds. As I write in my book, which I hope I'm going to leave a copy over here. I have heard the words, we were so much happier and we had so much less from so many of my clients, it's not even funny. I counsel multi-billionaire families and all we deal with all day is fighting and strife and hatred and all the problems that you can't even imagine. Now I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you cannot find happiness with money, but you won't find happiness with money if you think that buying yourself the next who knows what is what it's all about. And then one day I realized that the, the Satan tries to get us to buy into artificial fake pleasure. The next one, the next one. I got my first new car. I'll never forget it. The new car smell. I couldn't even believe that I own new car smell. It's like, it's not possible. My father, I love Shalom, never had a car with electric windows because it was always a little cheaper to get with the. I got my first car with electric I couldn't believe it. I, I'm driving and it has new car smell. What car? What car? It was a Toyota Camry LE, 1989. <laughs> I got my second car. The pleasure lasted two or three weeks. By the time I got my third car, I realized it's not working anymore, so maybe I should get a nicer car. Trust me, there's never going to be a feeling 
Let me ask you all a question. Have any of you ever done anything incredibly meaningful in your life? No. What was it? Uh, a hike. A hike? Yeah. Give me something more meaningful. <laughs> Come on. Where you fell, where you fell, this is why I'm here. Have any of you ever done that? What? You came to this yeshiva. Anyone else? Stand up. Close your eyes. Remember it? Tell me about it. What did it feel like when you stood up there? I was surprised. I didn't really tell people what's that message. I felt really fulfilled. Feel it now? Yeah. Great. Sit down. Any of you have ever had? Yeah. Uh, Stand up. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to relive one experience where you did something for a special needs child that you know at that moment this is why God put me on this world. Somebody you don't want to do twice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Somebody you don't want to do twice. How many of you have ever eaten a really amazing steak at a very expensive restaurant? Anyone? Oh, yeah. Where did you eat? Uh, a lot of places. What was the best steak you ever ate in your life? Who? From your father? Your father? But which steak? Remember the steak? Yeah, yeah? Yeah. Close your eyes and relive it. Uh, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a steak. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was a steak. Okay. I once had... Oh, yeah, you go everywhere. Ah! Could you leave, leave uh, reserve cup, Wall Street, bro. It's, it's still it's still <laughs> physical evidence. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I telling you all this? What? Oh, oh my gosh. I, you want me to start crying? No, really? You want me to start crying? Yeah. It's going to take a second. All right. My first scene Masechta. My first scene Masechta. I was twelve years old. I finished Masechta Sukkah. I skipped basketball that whole summer. I made a scene for my Zaydi's yard site. I was twelve years old. My parents came up from camp. Came up to camp. I stood in front of the whole camp, and I made a scene. I still have the copies tomorrow that my Rebbe gave me, inscribed. And I could not believe that I was able to finish a Masechta. 
I, if I start talking my first CMS Shas, I'll be bawling. What should I tell you? I can relive thousands of experiences that would bring tears to my eyes. Where all I thought in that moment was, I don't know what I did to be Zaycha, to have been able to do what I just did. I felt like you feel when you stood up there, overwhelmed with Akar Sataif Ta'akadosh Baruch Hu, which I tell you, I don't know why. Whether it was the birth of a child, whether it was saying vidui with several people as they braved their last. Being zaycha to save two people from choking. There are things in life that touch us in an eternal way. The reason why you can relive a meaningful experience is because the neshama is eternal. The guf is very, very, very temporary. And that escape, a stake, unless it touches a deeper place. I have a picture in my computer of Rabbi David Feinstein, Zechut Tzadik Levracha, having a steak dinner in reserve cut with a man who he went to yeshiva with, who never got married, never had children. And every year on his birthday, Rabbi David Feinstein, Zechut Tzadik Levracha, took this man out for dinner and served him steak. Now that's a steak you can relive. <coughs> So one day I realized that I'm not any happier than I was as a child driving a red bike. It's just not working. The watches aren't working. The title's not working. The cars aren't working. It's just not working. And I'm not stupid enough to keep going and thinking, oh, because I don't have the new Tesla, or maybe I don't have the this, or maybe I don't have the that. One day I stopped and realized this is just not working. When something doesn't work, you try something else. Chaim Velazhina says in introduction to Nefesh HaChaim that the sole reason why the world was created, the sole reason why you were here, the sole reason that we suffer ups and downs and anxiety and everything and all the stresses of life, is for one reason alone. That one person should do for another. Period. This is why we're all here. And one day you realize that when you buy yourself something, that memory will not be there. You'll never be able to relive. That will not touch you in a deep, deep way. But when you buy something for somebody else, when you touch somebody else, when you inspire, when you instill meaning, when you help your friend out. I want to tell you an unbelievable story. I don't know if Rabbi Gissinger's book is here, but there's a book called At Any Hour. I, I have to say this book, I've read it three times. It's beyond, it's beyond, it's crazy. Rabbi Gissinger was a goggle, a man who had the whole Claudius role vying for his time. There's a story in that book. One day he calls up his nephew, Maishi Roman, and he says, Maishi, we have to take a trip. And they drive from Lakewood to Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. And when they get there, 
Rabbi Gissinger pops the trunk, <clears throat> takes out a ladder and a brown bag. And he goes, what are we doing? He goes, we'll see. Knocks on the door. Man opens up the door, an old man. And he says to him, where is it? And he points to a light fixture. He opens up the, the ladder, takes a bulb out of his brown bag, climbs up the ladder, changes a light bulb, closes the ladder, gives the man a big kiss on the cheek, and leaves. They drive back to Lakewood, and his nephew is he's plotting. So he turns to his uncle, he says, what was that? He says, what was it? I'll tell you what that was. This man, he has one son, he lives in Texas, has nothing to do with him. He lives all alone. He calls me at least once a week to bemoan his life, how miserable he is. And today, well, last night, he called me up and said, and on top of everything else, the one working light bulb in my kitchen burnt out. And I have nobody to change it. So what does Rabbi Gissinger, Zechitzalik of Racha, the one of the most busy people in the entire universe do? He takes a light bulb, he takes a step ladder, he drives an hour and a half each way to change a light bulb. Could you imagine Rechaim Knievsky coming to your house to change a light bulb? But what did he really do? He gave this man dignity, and it took three hours of his life. I want you to stop every single day and think about that. When I was a child, a kid in yeshiva committed suicide. He went up to the roof and he jumped. He was a, a bacher in Tarvadas, I lived in Tarvadimima, and his brother was my chavrusa. And I went to the Levaya. And Rebuvim finds Zechitzalik of Rachel was talking. And he said, then the tyrant says, By Egla Rufa, we have to be able to say, My hands did not spill this blood. And he said, Who knows if one of you would have said good morning to him this morning and given a pat on the back if he wouldn't be here today? And I walked away and I thought about that. We get so involved with what we're going through. But really we're here to notice what other people are going through. What do you mean? What am I? What can I offer? I'm a nobody. What? That's the rabbi's job. The therapists. Who am I? Yeah, the Eitzahari is very good. You're nothing, you're a nobody, you have your own problems. What could you possibly do for somebody else? It's such baloney, it's not even funny. You want a life of pleasure? You want a life of ecstasy? You don't need to sniff anything, you don't need to drink anything. Become addicted to doing for others. You don't have to do anything big. Guy loses his job. You take him out for coffee. And you just say, I'm here for you. Somebody's going through something. You just say, I wish I could help you, but I can't. But I want you to know I feel for you. We, we all need 
today chizuk. And every person can give chizuk. There was a girl who came to me. I used to teach at Arnava. She came to my office. She'd been through every modality of therapy. She'd been on every medication you can imagine for depression. And she says to me, I give up. I said, okay, now we could talk. Let's try this. I'm sending to you for to three months. Three months of chesed. I want you to find two projects a week that you're involved with. I don't care what it is. Bringing food to people in the house, going to visit children in the hospital. I want you to become somehow constructively involved in doing for others. And I want you to come back after two months with the report of how it went. She didn't have to wait two months. Two weeks later, she felt like a different person. She felt like a different person. So the second thing that I learned in life is that this is Ganeiden. Rabbi Kalish goes to sleep every night. I am sure if he does sleep, beyond exhausted. Beyond exhausted. There's nothing more exhilarating than going to sleep at night knowing that you squeezed out every single ounce of what you have inside of you. Every moment of that day for the sake of another person. And there's nothing more miserable than going to sleep at night and knowing that my entire day was about me, 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 me. When you take that idea one step further, you start to realize why HaKadosh Baruch Hu puts us through challenges. There's a great book out there called Man's Search for Meaning, written by Dr. Viktor Frankl. <clears throat> I might almost call him my Rebbe, but... It's a, it's a very, very interesting book. It's how he survives the Holocaust. And he does it by finding meaning in the black, bleak period that he had to live through. And what he did was he realized that one day, all this can be utilized to help somebody else. I'm speaking to every one of you. Every one of you. I don't know what each of you have been through. You know what you've been through. We don't believe that anything happens by chance. We believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu put us in the situation that we were in. As horrible, as depressing, as difficult as it was. And we have a hard time grappling with that. And you never judge somebody who lived through the Holocaust and then ran as far away from Yiddishkeit as possible. Or somebody that was violated as a child. Or somebody that grew up in an abusive home. We cannot judge such people because we cannot understand their nisyoyness. But one thing we know, that it didn't happen to us by chance. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu, this was part of the script. 
But how could that be? Why would I have to live through that? And it has to go back to the purpose of life. Which is that one day I'm going to stand at a podium and I'm going to have 300 kids listening to me and they're going to hear a story and they're going to say, I know what you went through and let me tell you how I got out of it. And that's what Viktor Frankl was envisioning throughout his years in Auschwitz. That one day I will help the world with what I'm experiencing right now. When I was a kid, they asked me to write a composition. They wanted one word that you wanted on your tombstone. And why? That was the question. What's one word that you wanted written on your tombstone and why is that word important to you? And I came home I told my mother what it was, and she says, how on earth are you going to come up with that? I said, oh, I know the word. She said, you know the word? I said, of course I know the word. What's the word? I said, wisdom. She said, wisdom? Why wisdom? And I said, because the definition <coughs> of wisdom is applied knowledge. Right? Applied knowledge, meaning I've learned something, I've internalized it, I own it, and now I can help others do the same thing. Right? If you've gone through something yourself, you know the darkness of the moment. When people come to me and they say they're unemployed, do you know what it's like to be unemployed? You know, you, you know any of you ever met someone who's unemployed? For a father of children, a husband, to lose their job is for their entire self-esteem to be completely shattered. You feel utterly useless. You feel like you fell off a moving train and that train just passed you by and that that's where you're going to stay. When people come to my office and they tell me I'm unemployed and they start to cry, I cry with them. You know why I cry with them? Because with everything that Baruch Hashem I have going for me, I spent six months unemployed. It was absolutely horrible. I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. I would sit on the floor and cry, and I would tell my wife, I don't know why you married me, but you made a big mistake, because I'm an absolute, utter loser. And I remember asking myself, why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu do this to me? And the answer is, my friends, because when somebody sits in my office and tells me they're unemployed, my heart seizes up, my stomach starts to do flips, and I stop and I say, I have to fix this. Because unemployment is not abstract to me. And neither are many of the other things that people come and tell me. We live in a world, Chavra, where everybody is suffering in some way, shape, or form, whether they're willing to admit it or not. I don't care what kind of house they live in. I don't care what kind of car they live in. Trust me, I hear this all day. The problems are unbelievable. But I want to tell you something. The problems of the next generation, I cannot help. You are going to help 
the problems of the next generation. You are the ones that are going to be standing at this podium 20 years from now. And there's going to be a bunch of boys in that room with all kinds of unimaginable histories. And you have to get here to help them. And right now, whatever you may be going through or what you've been through is to prepare you to stand at this podium so that you can be the source of wisdom to that generation. Because at some point, I will become out of touch with the problems of the generation. But you won't be out of touch. When you find meaning in challenge, when you find meaning in darkness, when you find meaning of what was done unto you, and you say, I cannot change the past, but I can change the future. And I can draw knowledge and wisdom and strength from this and not let whatever it was define who I am. Now you're living a meaningful, fulfilling life and every day is a treasure. One more and then if the rabbi lets, we'll have some questions. The last thing, and please, nothing here is Musr. Nothing. I'm talking to myself. On that last note, at the end of the day, we're all accountable to ourselves. The clear difference between successful people, people that go up to the top in whatever it is they're trying to do is that they take responsibility for themselves. Yeshiva is a wonderful place. There's structure. There's a mashkiach. There's a rebbe. When I grew up, there was rules for everything. When I had to show up, when I was allowed to leave, where I was allowed to go, and you were living to please somebody else. And so that somebody could check a box and say, you came on time, you left on time, you got a good mark, all wonderful. Somebody was holding you accountable. Your parents, your rabbi, it didn't matter who it was. And then one day, all that ends. There's no rule books, there's no regents, there's no mashkiach, there's just you. That's it. Some people take responsibility for their lives and some people spend their lives blaming and complaining. My Rebbe did this to me. This one did that to me. This is not fair. That's not fair. All true. True, true, true. But at the end of the day, it's not going to help you anything. At the end of the day, one day, you realize that you are accountable to yourself. Even if you're a big Yerushalayim and HaKadosh Baruch Hu one day is going to sit down and he's going to read back everything that you did and didn't do, even if you can integrate that, honestly, I can't. 
I can't. It's too abstract for me. It's too abstract for me. I, I just can't. I can't relate to a Dintaira one day in Shemayim and, and I'm going to shiver and I'm not going to remember my name. That doesn't motivate me in the morning. It just doesn't. What motivates me is that I know that I'm accountable to myself. I know that I'm responsible for myself. I know what I need to do and I know why I need to do it and I hold myself accountable. And if I can't produce, if I can't produce, I have nobody to blame but myself. And in my book, I will talk about being a perfectionist, which I am. But the reality is, one day you wake up and realize, this is my life. And I have two choices. I could succeed, but three choices. I could be mediocre, I could be a failure, or I can be a raging success. I don't know about you guys, but I had to be successful. I couldn't live with myself. In whatever it was, I just knew that Akash Baruch Hu didn't put me onto this world to be average or below average. This we call in Hebrew a she'ifa. Inspired living means that you absolutely internalize. Reb Nachman of Breslov says that the Yetzirah will convince you that such words, and I'm speaking now, were meant for other people. Rabbi Kalish is an extraordinary person. That person is an extraordinary person. But I was created to be regular. I'm different. It's not true. This is your choice. You want to be extraordinary, there is a path to be extraordinary. Extraordinary means that you are taking what HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you, you're maximizing it, and you are inspiring the world with it. And when you're acting in that way, you have a feeling of such utter fulfillment. It's euphoric when you know that you are living your mission. So those are my three points. Individuality, embracing the real pleasures of life, and taking responsibility for your life. Any questions? They didn't care. They're like, what does that mean? I'm like, what, which part didn't you understand? <laughs> you revealed. Anyone have a question? Yes. So his question was, how did I move on from this sucks, why did it happen, to now I'm going to use it to my advantage. So I, 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 the word closure, does it, everyone likes that word, right? Closure. Let's put closure on this. 
let, let me just define what closure means for me. Okay? Closure means to me that there's a room inside of me where I lock stuff up. It's a dark room. It's got a lot of cobwebs in it. A lot of moldy corpses laying around over there. Like in a horror movie, it's that room you don't want to go into. And that's where I lock stuff up. I'm very visual in this way. And there's a lot of stuff that happened to me that's locked up in that room. And there are certain things that trigger me, and I go into that room, and I stay away from those things as far as, as, far as possible. So, so rule number one is I realize what's in there. Sometimes you never get rid of it, and sometimes you don't even want to get rid of it. Right? If I don't feel the pain of what somebody else is telling me because in my subconscious is still there, well, I'm not going to be as motivated. Right? I don't want to forget what it felt like to be very poor and embarrassed and make fun of. All that stuff, I don't want to, I don't want to forget it. Right? But I do is I want to move on from it. So the first thing I do is, while it's happening now, Literally while it's happening, I'm stopping and I'm saying, okay, what can I learn from this? And how am I going to help people with this? I literally switch into that mode immediately. As it's happening, I'm already thinking like Viktor Frankl did in the Holocaust. He said, okay, I got it. This is going to be painful. This is going to hurt. I dab in the Kajbuch 10 times that this shouldn't happen, but here I am. It's happening. But now I'm starting to take notes. And by the way, I do, I take notes, I write down what I felt like, how horrible it was, how difficult it was. I'm now gathering research data. Because when I get out of this now, and then I go into how do I fix this mode. And I'm tracking all this so that one day I can have another chapter in my book. The first thing is to embrace what I said. Doesn't matter why it happened. It doesn't matter who did it to you. That one day will have absolutely no significance. What's significant is, what am I learning from this, and how am I going to pull myself out? And the quicker I switch into that mode of seeing this as an opportunity, that's, I, get, I get much less scarred. And then I meet, there are so many things that I've written lectures on, or spoken about, that happened to me recently. Challenges that happened to me recently, that very quickly I sat down and I said, okay, I need to write about this. I need to talk about this. And then very quickly it becomes a lecture. Question. I understand that. Like, if you're like, really wealthy and you buy objects and stuff, it wouldn't necessarily make you happy. But the actual act of like, going, like riding the girls' bike or whatever it is, to becoming a very wealthy person, is that not alone um, like, a very thing to think about often? In and of itself, no. It, well, let me, let me make clear. I was given now, I was enabled. Money is an enabler, right? Now I have the means. Now the question is to do what? Yes, going from not having the means, l- let me make this clear. When you don't have enough and you have enough, that's an unbelievable leap. Right? Not having parnas and having parnas is unbelievable. And that's a bracha for my Kodesh Baruch. We down for it every single day. Right? But what, it, what, but what does enough mean is the question. 
Right? If I could pay my bills and I could buy my kids children clothing, that's an unbelievable feeling that I have a car type for a coach broker every single day. That I could pay tuition on time at the beginning of the year, first check, send in a check. I thank the coach broker every single day. Every single day. That I could pay my tuition in the beginning of the year. And that is beyond. So that, that's unbelievable. But that's not wealth. Wealth is extra. Right? You don't think that has any effect? It has an amazing effect if you use it for the right reasons. If it becomes about more, bigger, better, the answer is you're on a very dangerous track. You're never going to be happy. Never. I have a, I have a, 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 a tire in my book that at least five Goyim have written to me and said changed their life. By the way, thousands of Goyim have read my book. Catholics, Muslims, Hindus. I don't know how it's full of Tyra, but don't ask me. The the Bar Tyra is from my great uncle, the great Hafla. You know who that Hafla was? So the Gemara says, Mishiyesh Laman writes a Messiah. Somebody who has one wants two. Somebody who has two wants four. Somebody who has four wants eight. Somebody has eight. So that's the law. What is the Mark talking about? Why don't we just say, Mishi Eshlan Manra writes up 700 billion. I don't know, what's, what's uh, Elon Musk worth today? Stock was 199 and change this morning. What? 204 billion? Mishi Eshlan writes a 205 billion because I need to have 1 billion more than Elon Musk. Why does Mara just say that? What's going on? Anyone else? Okay. Says the Hafla. If you knew that you're not going to be happy with 204 billion, that you need 205 billion, and I said to you, and I convinced you of this, you knew standing here at the beginning of this thing that I know that $204 billion will not even make me happy. What will you do? You'll open up a yeshiva called Waterbury. You'll say, you know what? That, that, that road is not for me. I mean, uh, seriously, come on. I mean, it's not going to happen. Even if I dreamt that I could be happy with $205 billion, which of course Elon Musk is trying to turn into $500 billion, but that's the whole thing. But if I knew... That I will never be happy. What's the point? Comes the eight, and he says, so, <laughs> come on. Seriously. If you have one, all you need is two. With two, you're done. I'll never forget. Ever forget this phone call. I called up my wife. I walked into my boss's office. Many years ago, I was in corporate finance. I was making $50,000 a year. $50,000 a year. I got an offer from Bank of New York for 80000 I wasn't going to go upstairs to my boss and say, I need a $30,000 raise, because that's insane. You don't go up and say, I need a $30,000 raise, right? So I went up and I quit. Because, like, you don't walk in and say, I need a $30,000 raise. So my boss says, why are you quitting? 
I said, what do you mean, why? <laughs> I just got an offer from the bank in New York for 80000 He goes, no, I'll give you 100 What? I'll give you 100 I said, what? $100,000? You said Yeah. Okay, fine, I'll stay. <laughs> Here's the phone call. Bubby, that's my wife. You sitting down? Mm-hmm. I am going to earn six figures. Correct? How long do you think I felt rich with six figures? Huh? How long? A week? Two weeks? A month? When it quickly became, I need that 150. But when I get to 150, I'm done. The Gemara is telling me such an unbelievable thing. The guy who has one and wants two doesn't think for a second that he needs four. If you tell him, no, you're never going to be happy, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. I'm telling you, $10 million, I'm done. I will n- Can I ask you a question? If I gave you $10 million, would you be done? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Guarantee you wouldn't do that. <laughs> That when you have won, that 10 million will not do it. You want to hear this conversation of how to client? Walking home from lunch, he has a friend, Brian. His client made, at the time, he's retired today, he was making 2.6 million a year. A year. Is that a lot of money? No. Yeah. No. And I asked about his friend, Brian. I said, how's Brian doing? He goes, Brian. Brian makes real money. I said, goes, 12 million. Now, seriously, 2.6 million was not real money anymore. 12 million was real money. I bet if I took Brian out for lunch and I asked him about Seth, Seth would be making real money because he makes 35 million. Let me tell you something, Fabra. This is not a Gemara. This is reality. It's reality. You understand? That I know people that live from paycheck to paycheck on Social Security that are happier than clients of mine that drive Rolls Royces. Now that, oh, that's such a cliche. Money doesn't buy you happiness. Come on, seriously. I'd rather be miserable in a Lexus than happy in a Honda. I've heard every single thing in the world. I've heard it all. I don't know about you, Kevra. I just want to be happy. Buy a golden retriever. Buy a golden retriever. You got it. You can make an adopt one for free. So let me explain something to you. In finance, there's a word. In psychology, there's a word. It's called the utilitarian value of money. Which is that a first number of dollars serves utilitarian value. I can afford to buy the house, I can afford to put a roof on my head, I can afford to have clean water and medical and all the things that are basic needs of a person. And there, the curve goes up very quickly, right? 
from going from 50,000 to 100,000, from going from a little rental apartment to owning your own home, which has enough beds for everyone to have their own, and enough bathrooms so you don't kill each other in the morning, that's a very upward sloping curve. Then beyond that, it starts to flatten out and then go down. It actually becomes detrimental. Don't believe me, read Malcolm Gladwell's book on this. It's absolutely true. But to a Yid, to a Jew who has a Rebbe, who's a, a person who knows that money is entrusted to you as a fiduciary, you could change the world. You could change the world. You can pay somebody's tuition so that he can go to Eretz Yisrael and make something out of himself. You can pay off somebody's credit, um, grocery bill who doesn't have a father. You can buy shoes for children in Eretz Yisrael that can't afford shoes. You can change the world with money. Or you can buy your ninth watch. It's up to you. That's free will. One more question, then we'll stop. Well, I don't get two questions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first question. Um, so, so first off, um, you you said multiple times how when you were in those toughest of times, you would turn to Hashem and you would try to figure out what to do. Um, for myself, when I was in my toughest of times, I would turn away from Hashem and lose that that amount of money that I had. How did you? How did you not turn away from religion and throw that away? And, that's a very good question. The Bina Le'itim, a very, very powerful Sefer, writes, his question was, why did I turn to Hashem? Why didn't I turn away from Hashem? I cannot say that I always didn't turn away from Hashem. The Gemara says that ain't all the nitvas a person is not judged in their moment of extreme grief. And we should never look back, or Nachman says, at times when we disconnected and let that moment or that period define us. Because when a person is going through tremendous hardship, and his first reaction is anger and turning away from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You say blame. Blame. Yeah, blame. A girl once came to my office. I'll never forget this. A girl from Arnava. She showed up in my office on Park Avenue. And she literally stormed in. She, she like told the, she had a meeting and she just walked into my office, sat down, and started spewing such profanity about a coach Berkeley you can't even imagine. Every word was F you, who knows what. When she was finished, I was smiling. She said, what are you smiling about? I said, I'm smiling because I'm so jealous of you. She said, you're jealous of me? Why are you jealous of me? I said, because Baruch was so real to you that you could get so angry at him? I'm so jealous of you. How do you have such a relationship with Akadosh Baruch that he could have angered you so much? And she stopped and she thought I was crazy. But that's coming from someone that already has that agreement. Right. So when you say turn away from Akadosh Baruch Hu, what are you blaming him? Right. Which means that 
you actually believe in Him. And that you actually know that He influences your life. And that He is to blame. And I am going to blame you. Because if not for you, this couldn't have happened. Says the Bina Le'itin. A mommy gives a little child a patch. Right? What does the child do? Cries. Cries. And what does he do? He runs away from his mother. But what does he do after that? He runs back. Because where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? I go back to my mommy. Growing up means each time you run away a little bit less and you run back a little bit quicker. But that doesn't mean that Kosh Baruch is not going to give you that patch when you're 40, or when you're 50, or when you're 60, and that you're not going to first react as running away. The other thing I learned was is that it's hard to internalize this sometimes when you're younger, but you get older and you start to really chop this. We don't do anything for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Kosh doesn't need us to put on fill in the morning. HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't need us to do anything. Now, this is... When I grew up, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was a vending machine. He's a vending machine. You put in the money, you push the button, out comes the wise potato chips. That's it. I give my sir money, he gives me back money. I dive in three times a day, I don't die of cancer. And you start to think that you get it. I understand how this works. Yeah. I'm a good boy, and I behave, and I don't talk about Shinharu, or I, sometimes I do, but then I stop myself, and then I go to Yom Kippur, and I cry, and please, Hashem, don't let me die, please, please, please. And then I go back, and I die, and I, and I think I, I kind of figured this whole thing out. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, bam! What, what did happen? Why I was being so good? I was, I was doing everything I was supposed to. Why could that be? It's not fair. It doesn't work out. What? And then I go, you know what? I'll teach you a lesson. No filling for a week. Ha! I'll show you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll talk less than that. Yeah, yeah. I'll skip a couple of days of stuff. You know what I mean? We'll see how it feels when you don't get what you want. Akash Baruch Hu. Sounds crazy, right? But, come on, seriously, is it not a part of every one of us that feels that way? I'm going to teach Akash Baruch Hu a lesson. He didn't keep his end of the bargain. We all go through this. If you don't go through this, please come and tell me why. Because I want to learn from you. And then one day I realized, do I have any idea what this is about? Do I have any idea where Kosh Baruch is? Do I understand the concept of infinite and ain't soif? Do I understand that every single thing I do, I do for myself? I don't do anything for Kosh Baruch Hu. Kosh Baruch Hu doesn't need anything. I can't give HaKadosh Baruch Hu anything. Yeah, I'm giving him Nachas Ruach. I know what that means. If I don't give him Nachas Ruach, he's in a bad mood. He brings a hurricane. I'm in a bad mood today. <laughs> Made him learn. Oh, somebody's going to pay for this one. When I'm in a bad mood, somebody pay. We have this whole warped idea. And I realized one day that all I'm doing by turning away and getting angry is hurting myself. Because I'm going to be miserable. And I also, you, you have to read my book. I'm telling you, if, if you can't afford my book, I'll give you a copy. I'm serious. I realize that I'm in a war. My whole life is one big chess game. 
against the Satan. The Satan wants me to fail. Period. And he, when I'm disconnected, when I'm angry, when I'm bitter, when I'm indicative, when I'm blaming, he is sitting there and going, oh, baby, I love this. I love this. And let me tell you something. There's no enemy in the world that you would do anything to make him happy. But we give him what he wants. And what does he want? He wants us to blame a Kajibarku. So I, I've grown up. And I've realized that I'm just living for myself. I'm not living for a Kaddish Baruch Hu. I had a client, his name was Andy Burian. Go look him up. He was an unbelievable person. Unbelievable person. He wrote a book. He once spoke for me to 300 college kids. He lived through four death camps. He's in my book, I think once or twice. And at the end, somebody asked him, Mr. Burian, could you tell me how after everything you lived through, you remained religious? And you know what he said to them? Some people are religious because they're afraid of going to hell. Not me. I've already been there. I'm not going there again. I'm religious because I want to be. That's what his words were. One day, I realized that I want to learn Gemara. One day I realized that I want to daven. I want to keep Shabbos. My kids know that if, if somebody walked into my house one day and said, Tully, you were mixed up at birth, you're Catholic. You're not who you think you are. They did a DNA test on me. The next Shabbos I would do nothing differently. Nothing differently. I wouldn't pick up my smartphone. I wouldn't get into my car. One day, I decided I want to keep Shabbos. I want to learn Gemara. I want to daven with a pair of filling on my hands. I want to do it. I want to be Jewish. So now it's not about punishing Akash Baruch Hu anymore. It's about not punishing myself. When you reach that point, the whole battle goes away. I would rather, I don't know, I'd rather kill myself than disconnect myself from what brings my neshama pleasure. But it takes time. But you'll get there. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Rabbi Sai, usually we do a song for visiting yeah, yeah. people before. I want to quickly, Rabbi Yochanan and Raphael in a rush, I want to thank Raphael for coming. I'm going to ask Zevi to come forward. Quickly, oh, two quick question. songs. They'll pay up with the song. Zevi, take it away. <laughs> Ya ya ram ya ram 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 
You have been listening to a shear from shasilluminated.org. For other shearim on many topics, or to hear an eon shear on any dafin shas, including Myron McClellan's on each shear, please visit www.shasilluminated.org. To order CDs or for more information, please call 203-312-SHAS. That's 203-312-7427 or email info at shasilluminated.org.